Amen, indeed. Actually, a very fitting conclusion to last Sunday's sermon. I kind of wish I'd preached last Sunday's sermon this Sunday, with the emphasis on the Word in those four parables in Mark chapter 4. You might remember if you were here, we have the parable of the sower, and so the Word received, the parable of the lamp, the Word proclaimed, the parable of the scattered seed, the Word applied, parable of the mustard seed, the word magnified. Amen. May the Spirit of God work through the preaching and proclamation of the word of God. We have some unfinished business in Mark chapter 4, and so I invite you to turn there with me. Our scripture reading, our text is brief, very brief in comparison to last Sunday's text, and so please follow along as I begin reading in the 35th verse. Again, that's Mark chapter 4, verse 35, where we read, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, that is, Christ said to the twelve, his disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and sea obey him? And so picture this scene, if you, if you can, use your sanctified imagination. There we have Christ uh, followed by this multitude, this crowd of people who've come from the north, from the south, from beyond the Jordan River. But it's time for him to leave the crowd behind. And he takes the twelve, his appointed apostles, his appointed disciples. They get into a boat, undoubtedly a fishing boat, and they begin to cross the Sea of Galilee. I want you to notice three great things. We find that word great three times in the verses I've just read. Notice three great things. Things. First of all, there is a great windstorm. Look at verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, you need to understand that the Sea of Galilee is located quite close to to hills, a small mountain range. You can probably guess what that means. Uh, Cold air descends from the hills. Warm air rises from the sea. These two pockets of air collide, and the result is what? A very unpredictable weather pattern. 
as a matter of fact, a, a, a weather, weather pattern that is conducive to violent storms. This is no ordinary storm. Uh, this, we might say, is the mother of all storms. Uh, the disciples, they're in a frenzy. They awaken the Lord Jesus Christ. Their question is what? Do you not care that we are perishing? I've been in hailstorms. I've been in windstorms. I've been in sandstorms. I've been in, in snowstorms. But I, I've never felt threatened. I've never felt as though my life were in any danger. Uh, the disciples think they are about to die. They think they're facing certain death. Now, please remember who these men are. Most of these men do what for a living? They are fishermen. Most of these men grew up on the banks of the Sea of Galilee. Most of these men have spent their entire lives on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is their backyard. Undoubtedly, they have been caught in numerous storms prior to this storm. But again, this is the mother of all storms. And they think they are about to die. They awaken him. Do you not care that we are about to perish? That's the first great. Clearly understood? A great windstorm. Second great is this. A great calm. Verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. That phrase, peace, be still, fascinating, because the verb, that expression, be still, do you know what it literally means? Be muzzled. Be muzzled. And so you think of that angry, go- angry dog that perhaps you've encountered in the past, that menacing creature. Uh, snarling and growling and barking, threatening. You put a muzzle on that beast, and what happens to it? Suddenly it is pacified. It is muzzled. This is the expression that the Lord Jesus uses here as he awakens from his sleep, as he hears the disciples cry, do you not care that we are perishing? As he himself sees the waves lapping up over the boat, the water filling the boat, the storm all around them engulfing him. He merely says with a word, he speaks directly to the storm, peace, be muzzled. And what is the result? There is immediately a great calm, wind and sea. That's fascinating. It's fascinating for a number of reasons. One in particular I'm thinking of, I can remember 30 years or so ago, uh, vacationing with my family in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. As many people from Ontario are inclined to do over spring break, there's this mass exodus from the province of Ontario to the Carolinas and to Florida, and the deputies and state troopers are waiting for us as we make our way down. <laughs> Nevertheless, just honing in on those Ontario license plates. But there we were in Myrtle Beach and uh, enjoying a, a family vacation, and one day this storm moved in from the Atlantic Ocean, menacing hit hard for maybe an hour right there on the coast and then just dissipated as quickly as it had appeared. The clouds were gone, the sky was blue, the wind was completely gone, but the waves, the ocean was still, what? Agitated. It took hours for the ocean to calm down, not in this case. 
The Lord Jesus cries to the storm, be muzzled. And immediately there was a great calm. The wind was gone, no wind. And the sea, the waves were still. And it is as if they were on a sheet of glass. Oh, the contrast, if our mind's eye can imagine it. One moment, a a great storm, a storm in which the disciples are sure they are about to die. And the next moment, a great calm. No wind, no waves. Now, the third fear, the third great I want you to notice is a great fear. We have a great windstorm in verse 37. We have a great calm in verse 39. And now look at what we read in verse 40. He said to them, so Christ addressing his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? And so picture those 12 men. I don't know if they got pails, buckets in their hands, and they're trying to get that water back out of the boat as quickly as it's coming in, shaking the Lord Jesus, crying out to him, we're about to perish, do something. And the text tells us that they are afraid. They are afraid, why? Because they're facing death. They're afraid, why? Because they find themselves caught in the midst of something that is uncontrollable. They find themselves caught in the midst of something that is unmanageable, something that is beyond their control. They are at the mercy of this storm. They are afraid. The Lord Jesus awakens. The Lord Jesus utters that rebuke, peace, be still, be muzzled. Immediately there is a great calm. And then what is the disciples' response? They were filled with great fear. They were afraid of the storm. Now they are greatly afraid of whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because they are in the presence of something that is even more unmanageable than the great storm. Who then is this? Who then is this that even wind and sea Obey him. Did you get those three? Pretty simple. You got a great storm, right? You got a great calm, and you got a great fear. What's Mark's point? Or to be more exact, what is the Spirit of God's point? Uh, we affirm that the, the Bible is God's word. We affirm that, uh, yes, there, are, there were human authors, but we affirm, we believe that these men wrote, they penned under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And so the Spirit of God, as he inspires Mark to write, and to be exact, to be precise, as he inspires Mark to relate this incident, this account, what's his point? What's his purpose? His purpose, simply put, is threefold. The Spirit of God desires that we, through this narrative, through this story, through this incident, that we behold the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God points to Christ. The Spirit of God magnifies Christ through the Word of God. And so here we have Christ magnified through the Word of God under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And there are three truths. This is the point. Three truths 
that are intended for our, our, our nourishment. Three truths which are intended, designed for our comprehension. And interestingly enough, each of these truths is linked with a question. There are three questions in these verses. And so did you catch that? We have three truths concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And these three truths are fairly simple to identify, to pinpoint, because they are connected to three questions. So let me give you the first truth. Christ is a glorious Savior. That is truth number one. Christ is a glorious Savior. It is linked to the question right at the end of verse 38. The disciples cry, Teacher, here's the question. Do you not care that we are perishing? Christ is a glorious Savior. The answer to their question is what? Yes, of course he cares. And the Lord Jesus saves them from that storm. Uh, The Lord Jesus, by his spoken word, stills the storm, storm, uh, rescuing, saving the disciples from Death, that is from perishing. That salvation, Christ's salvation of his disciples from a physical storm, points to a far greater salvation. Uh, Friends, we, we face a great storm. It isn't the threat of a tornado. It isn't the threat of a hurricane. It is the storm of God's wrath. Christ is a glorious Savior. Does he care that we are perishing? Yes, he is a glorious Savior, one who saves us from the storm of God's wrath. This is clearly understood in this narrative when we place it in its historical context. There is an illusion here. And Mark, as he writes, under the, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, the details he includes are intended to drive us back to the Old Testament and a story in the Old Testament. He is comparing the Lord Jesus Christ with whom? Jonah, do you remember the story of Jonah? I'm not asking if you remember the VeggieTales version. I have, I have no problem with VeggieTales if I'm looking for a good chuckle. No problem. But if I want theological exactitude, I don't go near VeggieTales. We're not talking about the VeggieTales version. We're talking about the biblical account. There is a parallel between Christ and Jonah. Uh, Jonah is in a boat sleeping. Christ is in this boat, sleeping. The Jonah's boat is caught in the midst of a terrible storm. Christ's boat is caught in the midst of a terrible storm. The other men on Jonah's boat think they are going to perish, die. The other men, namely the disciples on Christ's boat, think they are about to die. The other men on Jonah's boat, they awaken him to help them. So too, these men on Christ's boat awaken him to help them. In Jonah's case, what's his response? What does he say? If if you want to live, I must die. If you want to live, you throw me overboard. And we know the story. A great fish swallows Jonah, and Jonah spends three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Now you're thinking to yourself, well, that didn't happen here. No, but it's coming, friend, isn't it? 
the parallel is there because later, what will the Lord Jesus Christ say? Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so too the Son of Man must be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What does he say? He is saying precisely what Jonah had uttered centuries before. If I die, you live. Christ calms the storm of God's wrath. How? It is by virtue of his death, his burial, his resurrection. Three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. Friend, the Lord Jesus Christ is a glorious Savior. I quoted Jerry Bridges last Sunday. Let me repeat a portion of that quote. He writes, our acceptance, and friend, please hear this clearly, our acceptance with the Father is not based on what we do for God, but upon what Christ did for us in his sinless life and his sin-bearing His sinless life, meaning his obedience, his righteousness. You see, friend, understand this. To stand before God, you need two things. I need two things. First thing we need, pretty simple, righteousness. God is a holy God. And and no one who is unrighteous, ungodly can enter his presence. We need righteousness. Where do we get that righteousness? We get it from the Lord Jesus Christ. We stand before God, not on the basis of our righteousness or our, our obedience, We stand before God on the basis of Christ's righteousness reckoned to us. That is his sinless life. But equally important, his sin-bearing death. Whereby the Lord Jesus took my sin upon himself at Calvary's cross. He died so that I might live. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is a glorious Savior. He replaces a great storm. With a great calm. He replaces the storm of God's wrath with everlasting peace with God. That's the first truth we're intended to see in this incident. Christ is a glorious Savior. The second truth is this. Christ is a glorious shepherd. It too is linked to a question. As a matter of fact, there are two questions, but they're essentially two sides of the same coin. Verse 40. He said to them, so he has awakened from sleep, he heard their cry, he sees the storm, and he asks them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? What's he doing? It might pain us to hear this. What's he doing? He's rebuking them. Maybe rebuke is a harsh word, at least it usually is in the way we use it. He's challenging them. That softens it a little bit. That's what he's doing. He's challenging them. Uh, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? He's challenging them to do what? He is challenging them to think. He's challenging them to think. He is challenging them to see beyond the eye of sense. By sense, I don't mean common sense. I mean the physical senses, what we see, what we hear, what we touch, what we say, what we taste. He's challenging them to see beyond the eye of sense, beyond the storm. He is challenging them to remember what? That the Lord Jesus healed the paralytic. That the Lord Jesus healed the man with the withered hand. The Lord Jesus cleansed the leper. 
The Lord Jesus healed countless people suffering from various diseases. On top of that, the Lord Jesus cast out innumerable demons. Those demons themselves themselves crying, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. They heard the Lord Jesus make such claims as, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, I am the Lord of creation. They've been with him some time now. They have heard his teaching, his very clear claims. They have seen his marvelous works. All of this testifying to what? That he is God's anointed. He has been anointed by the Spirit of God, meaning what? That he is the Son of God, meaning what? That he is God, meaning what? That he is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Why are you so afraid? Yeah, the wind's blowing. Oh, see beyond the wind. Oh, the waves are crashing in. Look away. From the waves, look to me. Why are you so afraid? And in the second part of that question, have you still no faith? Now, I want us to get four truths out of that. We're going to just camp our tent here just for a little bit. I don't know how long. We'll see. We won't worry about time. But we're going to camp our tent here. And uh, as, as we meditate upon this wonderful truth, Christ is a glorious shepherd. I want us to see four sub-truths. I can phrase it like that in this text, in these verses. And I trust the Spirit of God will, will give us illumination and help us to understand these and take them to heart. The first is this, four truths as we meditate upon this wonderful truth that Christ is a glorious shepherd. Number one, it is Christ who leads the disciples into the storm. That's a starting point. It is Christ who leads the disciples, into the storm. Look at verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. It's his idea. Does he know what's coming? He knows they have a rendezvous with a storm. He doesn't see fit to tell them. It's none of their business at this point. But he has a rendezvous with the storm. It is Christ who leads them into this storm. I mean, think of these men. They're his apostles, disciples. He's chosen them from among a multitude of people. He's referred to them as his family. You know, those who do the will of my father, they're like my mother and my siblings. He has revealed to them none other The secret of the kingdom of God. What a privileged group of men. What have they done to deserve what's coming? What have they done to deserve this storm? Uh, Why would Christ bestow such grace and favor on these men only to set them up in this rendezvous that's coming with a storm in the midst of which they will think they are about to die? Christian, I want you to understand this. Oh, I pray God I understand this because I don't always understand this. Christ leads us into the storm. Now, I'm not talking again about tornadoes, hurricanes, or any other physical type of storm. I'm talking about physical illness. I'm talking about emotional trauma. I'm talking about mental turmoil. I am speaking of spiritual anguish. When you find yourself, and I 
hazard to guess that many of us here right now find ourselves in the midst of storms like these. Do not let go, for all you are worth, do not let go of this truth. Christ leads us into a storm. Why would he do that if he loves us? He does it precisely because he loves us. The storms are rendezvous. The storms are divine appointments. The the storms are the design of an infinitely, immeasurably wise and powerful and good God. And he designs these storms to test us on occasion, to purge us, most certainly, Our roots in this world go far too deep as his children. And at times he sees fit to cut us off at the roots, to purge us. At times it is to mature us, which is the case here with the disciples. He's maturing what? Their faith. He's encouraging them to exercise their faith, to see beyond the sense of the eye. And to look and behold with the sense of faith who the Lord Jesus Christ is. At times he does this to correct us. To correct us for our waywardness. To correct us because of our worldliness. To correct us because of our sinfulness. There there, there are a plethora of reasons why the Lord Jesus does this. At times he does this to use us. He wants to use us as examples. To encourage other believers. He wants to use us as examples to convert unbelievers. Most of us will have heard of John Wesley, right? We're going back a couple of years, 1700s. And John Wesley came as a, as a missionary mid-1700s to the states of, uh, I think it was South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia. Slight problem. You know what it was? He wasn't a Christian. He came as a missionary, but he wasn't a Christian. And it was on his voyage home that he... Re- it was an abysmal failure, as you can imagine. How are you going to win converts for Christ when you yourself aren't converted? But he wasn't a missionary. He was a missionary, but he wasn't a Christian. But on the voyage home, on the passage home, uh, in the midst of the Atlantic, on that ship, they were hit with a physical storm. A storm in which the captain himself thought this was, this was the end. And Wesley was beside himself. Wesley was outside of himself. Wesley was just, just beyond himself with the fear of death and what all of this meant. Until he, until he looked over and he saw one small group of men and women and children, maybe numbering a dozen or so. They were Moravians. I don't have time to get into the Moravians, but let me just say they were believers. And there he saw them simply sitting, simply praying, simply waiting. And at that moment, the Spirit of God used the example of their faith in the midst of a literal storm to convict Wesley of the fact that he did not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was through their unflappable faith. It was through their unwavering faith that the Spirit of God brought John Wesley to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The reasons, there are a multitude of reasons. I've just given you a sampling. But the most certain truth is this. Christ, as in the case of these twelve, he leads us into the storms. Second truth is this. And this, is, uh, this may seem odd when I first state it, but stay with me. Christ seems indifferent 
in the midst of the storm. Christ seems indifferent in the midst of the storm. That comes out of verse 38. He was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. If you were one of the 12, what would you conclude from that? Yeah, there's a little bit of disinterest going on there. Uh, He's abandoned us. He's left us alone here. He has left us to ourselves. And that is a truth we dare not deny because far too often it is the case that when we find ourselves in the midst of the storm, our perception of the Lord Jesus Christ can only be described as what? Indifference. Where is he? Where is he? Um, What is he doing? Why can't I see him like I used to see him? Why has he left me in this condition? Why has he abandoned me? Christian, understand, all of these questions arise from our perspective. This is not a reflection on Christ's perspective. All of these questions, these heart dilemmas arise from our perspective. Why? Because we are driven by the eye of sense. When we're in the midst of the storm, what is all we can see? The storm. All we see are the clouds. All we feel is the wind. And all we see are are these threatening waves. And all we think is, is Christ is indifferent. I'm perishing. Where is he? And what do we so easily lose sight of? We lose sight of Christ. The eye of faith, as is the case with the disciples in this narrative, the eye of faith, think of all that they knew about the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about all that they knew about what he had done, who he has claimed to be, who he is. It is all in just a moment as they pass through this storm, it all just vanishes. The eye of faith gives way to the eye of sense. It is difficult, friend. I know it's difficult. I know it's difficult from experience. It's difficult, it's difficult because we are dealing with the realm of the invisible. It's far easier to be driven by the visible, the sensible, that which we can see and hear and touch and smell, than it is to be driven by the invisible. God is invisible. God's promises... The majority of his promises pertain to a distant future. Here I am now, and I'm going under. No, you're not, friend. That is our perception in the midst of the storm. When the eye of faith momentarily gives way to the eye of sense. Friend, don't beat yourself up over this. See, we're prone to do that. We're prone to beat ourselves up when we start thinking and feeling that. Don't beat yourself up about it. We recognize it, we acknowledge it, and we get into the Word of God, and we live by the Word of God. We live by the promises, that which pertains to the invisible, the future. We rest in an invisible God, but we rest in what is most certain because it is revealed and declared in the Word of God, whereby the eye of sense gives way to the eye of faith, and like those Moravians who found themselves on that ship, they are able to rest with this calm assurance. Christ got me here. And either he will get me out of it or he will sustain me through it. But either way, the Lord Jesus Christ is over this. He is through this. He is in this. He is under this. He has orchestrated it. And in some marvelous, grand design, I have this unflappable faith 
despite the fact that I'm just wind-tossed and storm-stricken, this unflappable faith that I rest in the palm of my Savior's hand, and he is a glorious shepherd. Third truth is this. You already know this one. We'll throw it in there anyway. Christ has absolute power over the storm. He has absolute power over the storm. You know, to the paralytic, what did he say? Get up. And he got up. To the leper, what did he say? Be cleansed. And he was cleansed. And now to a storm, what does he say? Be muzzled. And there is perfect, a great call. He has absolute power over the storm. He can deliver us from storms. He can sustain us through storms. He can provide for all our needs. Keep building on this. I mean, this just goes down so many avenues. He can save the chief of sinners. He can convert Muslims. He can convert hedonists. He can convert legalists. He can convert hedonists. He can convert anyone. No one beyond his power. He can break a hard heart. He can heal a broken heart. He can transform entire societies. He can, as we were reminded last Lord's Day, build a great tree from a mustard seed. He can build a great kingdom from what all appearance from what from what all appearances seems to be very small and humble beginnings, build a great and mighty kingdom. Oh, the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. That is the promise. And our confidence is is in in unchallengeable, unrivaled power, absolute power over the storm. Fourth truth is this. We're still under the second major truth. Christ is a glorious shepherd. Fourth sub-truth is this. Christ is a worthy object of faith in the midst of the storm. Christ is a worthy object of faith in the midst of the storm. That's what he's teaching the disciples, incidentally, right here with that question. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? I am a worthy object of faith in the midst of this storm given who I am. That is what he's teaching us as our glorious shepherd. Uh, Some years ago, I was was teaching, preaching in the country of Nepal. uh, In the Himalayas, they occupy a a huge part of Nepal. And I was sitting outside one evening and just awestruck by the, the size of those things, those mountains, the Himalayas. The sun went down gradually, and eventually the night sky and the stars appeared. And those stars were but specks of dust compared to what I had just seen in Himalayas. That was my perspective. If, however, I were to travel to the stars, what would I discover? I would discover that they are immeasurable in size and that from that perspective, I wouldn't even be able to see the Himalayas. See, that's our problem problem. That's our struggle. Let's put it that way. That our perspective is finite. Our perspective is here. 
Our perspective is now. Our perspective is driven, driven by, by the sensible, what we see. But we must remember, friends, that the storm is not all-encompassing. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who is all-encompassing. And we must remember, friend, it is not the quality of our faith that will save us. It is the object of our faith who saves us. I've heard the illustration given of a man. We don't know why. Just use our imagination here. He goes over a cliff, and he grabs a branch on the way down. How much faith does he need for that branch to save him? Or he needs any faith at all. He just needs to grab the thing. His salvation will not be rooted in the quality nor strength of his faith. It is rooted in what? The strength of the branch. Friend, we hear it so much today. Oh, you need more faith. If only you had more faith. If only your faith were stronger. As if we could conjure up this powerful feeling or emotion somehow that will manipulate God into doing what we do. Friend, the object of our faith is not our faith. The object of our faith is God. It is not the quality nor strength of our faith that saves us. It is the object who saves us. And the only worthy object of faith is our glorious shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hudson Taylor, great missionary, worded it so well. We do not need a great faith, but faith in a great God. We do not need, don't beat yourself up over that one. We do not need a great faith. I hear it so much today, it drives me batty. We need faith in a great God, a glorious shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who stands as a worthy object of our faith. Oh, we sing it sometimes, the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose. I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Mark wants us to see that. The Spirit of God, pardon me, wants us to see that. We have a glorious shepherd. Third truth is this. We have a glorious sovereign. So glorious Savior, linked to the question at the end of verse 38, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? A glorious shepherd, linked to the question in verse 40, what, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And now a glorious sovereign linked to the question in verse 41, right at the end. Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? There is only one answer. It's it's, it's actually the entire point of the book. Again, how, how does he begin? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Son of God. The Baptist declared it. The Father himself confirmed it at Christ's baptism. The devil tested him and he passed the test with flying colors. He himself has manifested who he is. You've seen him. He healed the leper. He raised the paralytic. He has healed all sorts of diseases. You've seen his power over the demons, meaning what? He has bound the strong man and he is now plundering his house. The kingdom has come. Do you understand? He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is a glorious sovereign. Who then is this that even sea and wind obey him? Friend, it is God Almighty. 
It is Yahweh of old, the great I am. It is the creator himself, the one who rules by providence himself, the sustainer of all things. And here is the wonder of wonders. Here is the mystery of mysteries. He stands before them as a man. That's beautiful. He stands before them as a man. John Chrysostom, old church father, said, Oh, his sleeping, Christ sleeping, shows that he was a man. His calming of the seas declares him God, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, friend, be encouraged by this. Yes, we serve a glorious sovereign. But be encouraged by this. The one who dwells in unapproachable light has drawn near through humanity that we might draw near to him. He is not far away. He has come so close as to clothe himself with our humanity, body and soul. He has come so close as to experience life in a fallen world. He has come so close as to bear our sin and shame. He has come so close to taste death for us. Martin Luther cried on numerous occasions. Do not give me God without giving me his humanity. Do not give me God without giving me his humanity. What did he mean? God is unapproachable light. God is a consuming fire. God is holy. I am not. Do not give me God without giving me his humanity. Do not give me God without giving me the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not give me God without declaring and making it perfectly clear that that unapproachable God has drawn nigh. He has come close in Christ that we might approach him through this mediator. His sinless life, his sin-bearing death, whereby we enjoy fellowship with a glorious sovereign. Christ knows what an encouraging thought. He knows what it is like to be hungry and weary. The glorious sovereign knows what it is like to be hungry and weary. He knows what it is like to face temptation. He knows what it is like to experience betrayal, to encounter injustice, to suffer abandonment, To lose a loved one. And this glorious sovereign empathizes with our frailties and sympathizes with our sorrow. Oh, Christian, do you get it? Do I get it? We have, yes, firstly, a glorious Savior. Do you not care that we are perishing? Oh, he cares. And his sinless life and his sin-bearing death has provided a great salvation. He is a glorious shepherd who leads us as he sees fit into the midst of storms. But he does not leave us there. He does not abandon us there, but has wonderful designs and purposes for us. And he is a glorious sovereign, matchless in majesty, who has become a man, who has dwelt among men, and who is still a man, 
at the right hand of the majesty on high, where he lives to make eternal intercession for us. We're going to sing a song in a few moments. Let me, let me just read the words for you because I pray they will impact us and you'll see how this ties in and relates so well. The uh, song is filled with questions. Who has held the oceans in his hand? Who has numbered every grain of sand? Kings and nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to rejoice. Who has given counsel to the Lord? Who can question any of his words? Who can teach the one who knows all things? Who can fathom all his wondrous deeds? He's a glorious sovereign. But hear the next stanza. Who has felt the nails upon his hands? Bearing all the guilt of sinful man. God eternal, humbled to the grave. Jesus, Savior, risen now to reign. Bow with me as we come before this great God in prayer. Our Father, you are good and you do good. The earth is full of your steadfast love. Your word is a light in the midst of the darkness and a rock in the midst of the storm. Teach us judgment and grant us knowledge. May we learn to say with the psalmist, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Your word is better than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. May we esteem it in our hearts, meditate upon it in our minds, speak it with our words, and obey it in our lives. In the matchless name of Christ, we do ask it. Amen.